Part One of Chapter Twenty One of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part One of Chapter Twenty One. Eve's Martyrdom. One. After a magnificent night's sleep, so magnificent indeed that he felt as if he had never until that moment really grasped the full significance of the word sleep, Mr. Brohack rang the bell for his morning tea. Of late he had given orders that he must not under any circumstances be called, for it had been vouchsafed to him that in spite of a multitude of trained servants there were still things that he could do for himself better than anybody else could do for him, and among them was the act of waking up Mr. Brohack. He knew that he was in a very good humour, capable of miracles, and he therefore determined that he would seize the opportunity to find the human side of Mr. Brule and make a friend of him. But the tea-tray was brought in by Mrs. Prohack, who was completely and severely dressed. She put down the tray and kissed her husband, not as usual, but rather in the manner of a Roman matron, and Mr. Prohack divined that something had happened. "'I hope Brule hasn't dropped down dead,' said he, realising the foolishness of his facetiousness as he spoke. Eve seemed to be pained. "'Have you slept better?' she asked the solicitors. "'I've slept so well that there's probably something wrong with me,' said he. "'Heavy sleep is a symptom of several dangerous diseases.' "'I'm glad you've had a good night,' she began, again ignoring his maladroit flippancy. "'Because I wanted to talk to you.' "'Darling,' he responded, "'pour out my tea for me, will you?' then I shall be equal to any strain. I trust that you also passed a fair night, madam. You look tremendously fit. Visions of Lady Massillon flitted through his mind, but he decided that Eve, seriously pouring out tea for him under the lamp in the morning twilight of the pale bedroom, could not be matched by either Lady Massillon or anybody else. No, he could not conceive a Lady Massillon pouring out early tea. The Lady Massillons could only pour out afternoon tea, a job easier to do with grace and satisfaction. "'I have not slept a wink all night,' said Eve primly. "'But I was determined that nothing should induce me to disturb you.' "'Yes,' Mr. Prohack encouraged her, sipping the first glorious sip. "'Well, would you believe me that Sissy slipped out last night after dinner without saying a word to me or anyone, and that she didn't come back and hasn't come back? I sat up for her till three o'clock, I telephoned to Charlie, but no, he'd seen nothing of her. Did you telephone to Ozzie? Telephone to Ozzie, my poor boy, of course I didn't. I wouldn't have Ozzie know for anything. Besides, he isn't on the telephone at his flat. That's a good reason for not telephoning, anyway, said Mr. Prohack. But did you ever hear of such a thing? The truth is, you spoilt that child. I may have spoilt the child, Mr. Prohack admitted. But I have heard of such a thing. I seem to remember that in the dear dead days of dancing studios something similar occurred to your daughter. Yes, but we didn't know where she was. You didn't. I did, Mr. Prohack corrected her. Do you want me to cry? Eve demanded suddenly. Yes, said Mr. Prohack. I love to see you cry. Eve pursed her lips and wrinkled her brows and gazed at the window performing great feats of self-control under extreme provocation to lose her temper. "'What do you propose to do?' he asked with formality. "'Wait till the girl comes back,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Arthur, I really cannot understand how you can take a thing like this so casually,' 
No, I really can't. Neither can I, Mr. Brohack admitted, quite truthfully. He saw that he ought to have been gravely upset by Sissy's prank, and he was merely amused. Effect of too much sleep, no doubt, he added. Eve walked about the room. I pretended to Machin this morning that Sissy had told me that she was sleeping out, and that I had forgotten to tell Machin. It's a good thing we haven't engaged ladies' maids yet. I can trust Machin. I know she didn't believe me this morning, but I can trust her. You see, after Sissy's strange behaviour these last few days, now one doesn't know what to think. And there's something else. Every morning for the last three or four weeks Sissy's gone out somewhere, for an hour or two, quite regularly. And where she went I've never been able to find out. Of course, with a girl like her it doesn't do to ask too direct questions. Ah, I should like to have seen my mother in my place. I know what she'd have done. What would your mother have done? She always seems to me to be a fairly harmless creature. Yes, to you. Do you think we ought to inform the police? No. I'm so glad. The necklace and Sissy coming on top of each other? No, it would be too much. Never rains, but it pours, does it? observed Mr. Prohack. But what are we to do? Just what your mother would have done. Your mother would have argued like this. Either Sissy is staying away against her will, or she is staying away of her own accord. If the former, it means an accident, and we are bound to hear shortly from one of the hospitals. If the latter, we can only sit tight. Your mother had a vigorous mind, and that is how she would have looked at things. I never know how to take you, Arthur, said Mrs. Prohack, and went on. And what makes it all the more incomprehensible is that yesterday afternoon Sissy went with me to Jay's to see about the wedding dress. But why should that make it all the more incomprehensible? Don't you think it does somehow? I do. Did she giggle at Jay's? Oh, no, oh, except once. Yes, I think she giggled once. That was when the fitter said she hoped we would give them plenty of time, because most customers rushed them so. I remember thinking how queer it was that Sissy should laugh so much at a perfectly simple remark like that. Oh, Arthur! Now, my child, said Mr. Prohack firmly, don't get into your head that Sissy has gone off hers. Yesterday you thought for quite half an hour that I was suffering from incipient lunacy. Let that suffice you for the present. Be philosophical. The source of tranquillity is within. Remember that, and remind me of it, too, because I'm apt to forget it. We can do nothing at the moment. I will now get up, and I warn you that I shall want a large breakfast, and you to pour out my coffee, and read the interesting bits out of the daily picture to me. 2. At eleven o'clock of the morning, the status quo was still maintaining itself within the noble mansion at Manchester Square. Mr. Brahack, washed, dressed, and amply fed, was pretending to be very busy with correspondence in his study but he was in fact much more busy with Eve than with the correspondence. She came in to him every few minutes, and each time needed more delicate handling. After one visit Mr. Prohack had an idea. He transferred the key from the inside to the outside of the door. The next visit Eve presented an ultimatum. She said that Mr. Prohack must positively do something about his daughter. Mr. Prohack replied that he would telephone to his solicitors, a project which happily commended itself to Eve, though what his solicitors could do except charge a fee, Mr. Prohack could not imagine. "'You wait here,' he said persuasively. He then left the room and silently locked the door on Eve. It was a monstrous act, but Mr. Prohack had slept too well 
and was too fully inspired by the instinctive initiative. He hurried downstairs, ignoring Brule, who was contemplating the grandeur of the entrance hall, snatched his overcoat, hat, and umbrella from the seventeenth-century panelled cupboard in which these articles were kept, and slipped away into the square before Brule could even open the door for him. As he fled, he glanced up at the windows of his study, fearful lest Eve might have divined his purpose to abandon her, and, catching sight of him in flight, might begin making noises on the locked door. But Eve had not divined his purpose. Mr. Brohack walked straight to Bruton Street, where Oswald Morphy's Japanese flat was situated. Mr. Brohack had never seen this flat, though his wife and daughter had been invited to it for tea, and had returned therefrom with excited accounts of its exquisite uniqueness. He had decided that his duty was to inform Ozzy of the mysterious disappearance of Sissy as quickly as possible, and, as Ozzy's theatrical day was not supposed to begin until noon, he hoped to catch him before his departure to the beck and call of the mighty Asbury Chow. The number in Bruton Street indicated a tall, thin house with four bell-pushes and four narrow brass plates on its door-jamb. The deceitful edifice looked at a distance just like its neighbours, but, as the array on the door-jamb showed, it had ceased to be what it seemed, the home of a respectable Victorian family in easy circumstances, and had become a Georgian warren for people who could reconcile themselves to a common staircase, provided only they might engrave a sound West End address on their notepaper. The front door was open, disclosing the reassuring fact that the hall and staircase were at any rate carpeted. Mr. Prohack rang the bell attached to Ozzy's name, waited, rang again, waited, and then marched upstairs. Perhaps Ozzy was shaming. Not being accustomed to the organisation of tenements in fashionable quarters, Mr. Prohack was unaware that, during certain hours of the day, he was entitled to ring the housekeeper's bell on the opposite door-jamb, and to summon help from the basement. As he mounted it, the staircase grew stuffier and stuffier, but the condition of the stair-carpet improved. Mr. Prerichak hated the place, and at once determined to fight powerfully against Sissy's declared intention of starting married life in her husband's bachelor flat for the sake of economy. He would force the pair, if necessary, to accept from him a flat rent-free, or he would even purchase for them one of those bijou residences of which he had heard tell. He little dreamed that this very house had once been described as a bijou residence. The third-floor landing was terribly small and dark, and Mr. Brohack could scarcely decipher the name of his future son-in-law on the shabby nameplate. "'This den would be dear at elevenpence three farthings a year,' said he to himself, and was annoyed, because for months he had been picturing the elegant Oswald as the inhabitant of something orientally and impeccably luxurious, and he wondered that his women, as a rule so critical, had breathed no word of the flat's deplorable reproaches. He rang the bell, and the bell made a violent and horrid sound, which could scarcely fail to be heard throughout the remainder of the house. No answer. Ozzy had gone. He descended the stairs, and on the second-floor landing saw an old lady putting down a mat in front of an open door. The old lady's hair was in curl-papers. "'I suppose,' he ventured, raising his hat, "'I suppose you don't happen to know whether Mr. Morphy has gone out?' The old lady scanned him before replying. "'He can't be gone out,' she replied. "'He's just been sweeping his floor enough to wake the dead.' "'Sweeping his floor?' exclaimed Mr. Prohack, shocked, thunderstruck. "'I understood there were service flats.' 
So they are, in a way. But the housekeeper never gets up to this floor before half-past twelve, so it can't be the housekeeper. Besides, she's gone out for me. Thank you, said Mr. Prohack, and remounted the staircase. His blood was up. He would know the worst about the elegant Oswald, even if he had to beat the door down. He was, however, saved from this extreme measure, for when he aimlessly pushed against Oswald's door, it opened. He beheld a narrow passage, which in the matter of its decoration certainly did present a Japanese aspect to Mr. Prohack, who, however, had never been to Japan. Two doors gave off the obscure corridor. One of these doors was open, and in the doorway could be seen the latter half of a woman and the forward half of a carpet-brush. She was evidently brushing the carpet of a room, and gradually coming out of the room and into the passage. She wore a large blue pinafore apron, and she was so absorbed in her business that the advent of Mr. Prohack passed quite unnoticed by her. Mr. Prohack waited. More of the woman appeared, and at last the whole of her. She felt, rather than saw, the presence of a man at the entrance, and she looked up, transfixed. A deep blush travelled over all her features. "'How clever of you!' she said, with a fairly successful effort to be calm. "'Good morning, my child,' said Mr. Prohack, with a similar and equally successful effort. "'So you're cleaning Mr. Morphy's flat for him?' "'Yes, and not before it needed it. Do come in and shut the door.' Mr. Prohack obeyed, and Sissy shed her pinafore apron. "'Now we're quite private. I think you'd better kiss me. I may as well tell you that I'm fearfully happy.' much more so than I expected to be at first. Mr. Brohack again obeyed, and when he kissed his daughter he had an almost entirely new sensation. The girl was far more interesting to him than she had ever been. Her blush thrilled him. "'You might care to glance at that,' said Sissy, with an affectation of carelessness, indicating a longish, narrowish piece of paper covered with characters in red and black, which had been affixed to the wall of the passage with two pins. We put it there, at least I did, to save trouble. Mr. Prohack scanned the document. It began, This is to certify, and it was signed by a Registrar of Births, Deaths and Marriages. Yesterday, eh? he ejaculated. Yes, yesterday at two o'clock. Not at St. George's and not at St. Nicodemus's. Well, you can say what you like, Dad. I'm not aware of having said anything yet, Mr. Prohack put in. You can say what you like, but what did you expect me to do? It was necessary to bring home to some people that this is the twentieth century, not the nineteenth, and I think I've done it. Anyway, what are you going to do about it? Do you seriously propose that I, I was going through all the orange blossom rigmarole, voice the breather, Eden, full coral, red carpet on the pavement, flowers, photographers, vicar, vestry, daily picture, reception, congratulations, rice, old shoes, gay away dress, be kind to her, Aussie? Not much. And I don't think. They say that girls love it and insist on it. Well, I don't, and I know some others who don't, too. I think it's simply barbaric, worse than a public funeral. Why, to my mind, it's Central African, and that's all there is to it, so there. She laughed. Well, said Mr. Prohack, holding his hat in his hand, I'm a tolerably two-faced person myself, but for sheer heartless duplicity I give you the palm. You can beat me. Has it occurred to you that this dodge of yours will cost you about fifty per cent of the wedding presents you might otherwise have had? It has, said Sissy. That was one reason why we tried the dodge. Nothing is more horrible than about fifty per cent of the wedding presents that brides get in these days. And we've had the two finest presents anybody could wish for. 
Oh? Yes. Ozzy gave me Ossie, and I gave him me. I suppose the idea was yours. Of course. Didn't I tell you yesterday that Ozzy's only function at my wedding was to be indispensable? He was very much afraid at first when I started on the scheme, but he soon warmed to it. I'll give him credit for seeing that secrecy was the only thing. If we'd announced it beforehand, we should have been bound to be beaten. You see that yourself, don't you, dearest? And after all, it's our affair, and nobody else's. That's just where you're wrong, said Mr. Prowhead grandly. A marriage, even yours, is an affair of the States. It concerns society. It is full of reactions on society. And society has been very wise to invest it with solemnity, and a certain grotesque quality. All solemnities are a bit grotesque, and so they ought to be. All solemnities ought to produce self-consciousness in the performers. As things are, you'll be ten years in convincing yourself that you're really a married woman, and till the day of your death, and afterwards, society will have an instinctive feeling that there's something fishy about you, or about Ozzy, and it's your own fault. Oh, Dad, what a fraud you are! And the girl smiled. You know perfectly well that if you'd been in my place, and had had the pluck, which you wouldn't have had, you'd have done the same. I should, Mr. Prohack immediately admitted, because I always wanted to be smarter than other people. It's a cheap ambition. But I should have been wrong. And I'm exceedingly angry with you, and I shall be suffering from a sense of outrage, and I should not be at all surprised if all is over between us. The thing amounts to a scandal. The worst of it is that no satisfactory explanation of it can ever be given to the world. If your Aussie is up, produce him, and I'll talk to him as he's never been talked to before. He's the elder, he's a man, and he's the most to blame. Take your overcoat off, said Sissy, laughing and kissing him again. Don't you dare to say a word to Ozzy. Besides, he isn't in. He's gone off to business. He always goes at eleven-thirty punctually. There was a pause. Well, said Mr. Prohack, all I wish to state is that if you had a feather handy, you could knock me down with it. I can see all over your face, Sissy retorted, that you're so pleased and relieved you don't know what to do with yourself. Mr. Prohack perfunctorily denied this, but it was true. His relief that the wedding lay behind instead of in front of him was immense, and his spirits rose even higher than they had been when he first woke up. He loathed all ceremonies, and the prospect of having to escort an orange-blossom-laden young woman in an automobile to a fashionable church, and up the aisle thereof, and raise his voice therein, and make a present of her to someone else, and breathe sugary nothings to a thousand gapers at a starchy reception, this prospect had increasingly become a nightmare to him. Often had he dwelt on it in a condition resembling panic. And now he felt genuinely grateful to his inexcusable daughter for her shameless effrontery. He desired greatly to do something very handsome indeed for her and her excellent tame husband. "'Step in and see my home,' she said. The home consisted of two rooms, one of them a bedroom and the other a sitting-room, together with a small bathroom that was as dark and dank as a cell of the Spanish Inquisition and another apartment which he took for a cupboard, but which Sissy authoritatively conformed him, was a kitchen. The two principal rooms were beyond question beautifully Japanese in the matter of pictures, prints, and cabinets, not otherwise. They showed much taste. They were unusual and stimulating and jolly and refined. But Mr. Brahack did not fancy that he personally could have lived in them with any striking success. The lack of space, of light, and of air, 
outweighed all considerations of charm and originality. The upper staircase alone would have ruined any flat for Mr. Prohack. "'Isn't it lovely?' Cissy encouraged him. "'Yes, it is,' he said feebly. "'Got any servants yet?' "'Oh, we can't have servants. No room for them to sleep, and I couldn't stand charwomen. You see, it's a service flat, so there's really nothing to do.' "'So I noticed when I came in,' said Mr. Prohack. "'And I suppose you intend to eat at restaurants, or do they send up meals from the cellar?' "'Oh, we shan't go to restaurants.' Sissy replied. You may be sure of that. Too expensive for us. And I don't count much on the cookery downstairs. No, I should do the cooking in a chafing-dish. Here it is, you see. I've been taking lessons in chafing-dish cookery every day for weeks, and it's awfully amusing. It is, really. It's much better than ordinary cooking, and cheaper, too. Ozzie loves it. Mr. Brohack was touched, and more than ever determined to be generous in the grand manner, and start the simple-minded couple in married life on a scale befitting the general situation. "'You'll soon be clearing out of this place, I expect,' he began cautiously. "'Clearing out?' Cissy repeated. "'Why should we? We've got all we need. We haven't the slightest intention of trying to live as you live.' "'Ozzy's very prudent, I'm glad to say, and so am I. We're going to save half for a few years, and then we shall see how things are.' "'But you can't possibly stay on living in a place like this,' Mr. Prohack protested smiling diplomatically to soften the effect of his words. "'Who can't? You can't. But when you say me, do you mean your daughter or Ozzy's wife? Ozzy's lived here for years, and he's given lots of parties here—tea parties, of course.' Mr. Brohack paused, perceiving that he had put himself in the wrong. "'This place is perfectly respectable,' Cecilia continued. "'And supposing you haven't got all the money from America or somewhere,' she persisted. Would you have said that I couldn't possibly go on living in a place like this? She actually imitated his superior fatherly tone. You'd have been only too pleased to see me living in a place like this. Mr. Brohack raised both arms on high. All right, said the young spouse, absurdly proud of her position. I'll let you off with your life this time, and you can drop your arms again. But if anybody had told me that you would come here and make a noise like a plutocrat, I wouldn't have believed it. Till I'm frightfully fond of you, and I know you'd do anything for me, and you're nearly as much of a darling as Ozzy. But you mustn't be a rich man when you call on me here. I couldn't bear it twice. I retire in disorder, closely pursued by the victorious enemy, said Mr. Prohack, and in so saying he accurately described the situation. He'd been more than defeated. He'd been exquisitely snubbed. And yet the singular creature was quite pleased. He looked at the young girl, no longer his, and no longer a girl either. Set in the midst of a japanned and lacquered room that so resembled Ozzie in its daintiness, he saw the decision on her brow, the charm in her eyes, and the elegance in her figure and dress, and he came near to bursting with pride. She's got character enough to beat even me, he reflected contentedly, thus exhibiting an ingenuousness happily rare among fathers of brilliant daughters and even the glimpse of the covered kitchen, where the washing up after a chafing dish breakfast for two had obviously not yet been accomplished, even this touch seemed only to intensify the moral and physical splendour of his child in her bridal setting. At the same time, he added to the admission of defeat, I seem to have a sort of idea that latterly you've been carrying on rather like a plutocrat's daughter. That was only my last fling, she replied, quite unperturbed. I see. 
said Mr. Prahak musingly. Now, as regards my braiding present to you, am I permitted to offer any gift, or is it forbidden? Of course, with all my billions, I couldn't hope to rival the gift which Ozzie gave you. But I might come in a pretty fair second, mightn't I? Dad, said she, I must leave all that to your good taste. I'm sure that it won't let you make any attack on our independence. Supposing that I were to find some capital for Ozzie to start in business for himself as a theatrical manager. He must know a good deal about the job by this time. Sissy shook her delicious head. No, that would be plutocratic. And you see, I've only just married Ozzie. I don't know anything about him yet. When I do, I shall come and talk to you. While you're waiting, I wish you'd give me some crockery. One breakfast cup isn't quite enough for two people, after the first day. I saw a set of things in a shop in Oxford Street for one pound, nineteen and six, which I should love to have. What's happened to the mater? Is she in a great state about me? Had you better run off and put her out of her misery? He went, thoughtful. End of Part 1 of Chapter 21